Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Across the Street. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Chris Hostler, who you've heard from before. He has a lot of hats here at the Durham VA, but his most recent one is the Chief of the Office of Public Health and Epidemiology, Formally and informally, he is King COVID, and we're here today to talk about COVID and how the VA is handling it. Hi, Dr. Hostler. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so we've been involved in our COVID preparedness and COVID response. A lot of what we've done is develop interim guidance from an infection control standpoint, and now we're figuring out our path forward in terms of how do we, you know, once we kind of shut everything down, how do we now move towards continuing patient care in a safe and effective way? Uh, as we expand those services. Did you have this title before COVID? In COVID? No, I did not. Uh, no, so uh, uh, before COVID, I was the associate hospital epidemiologist. I actually had plans to kind of move into the hospital epidemiologist role right as this happened. So the Office of Public Health and Epidemiology is actually a new office that was inspired by our director and our chief of staff who realized the need to have a greater outreach to the community in a way to be proactive in addressing COVID. So we developed this with the thought that instead of just trying to improve the health and safety of our workforce and our veterans within the boundaries of our own wall, we wanna have an outreach program where we can be a little bit more proactive, uh, go into congregate living settings, group homes, nursing homes, and try to assist the public health infrastructure in a way that can improve the health and safety of people wherever they are. Wow, so you're working inside the hospital and far beyond it. Right or at least tasking other people to work far beyond the walls of the hospital. <laughs> sure. Planning to take on the role of hospital epidemiologist, you weren't planning for COVID, right? None of us were. No, uh, this, you know, I, I think every epidemiologist has thought that a pandemic was going to happen at some point or another, but certainly I can't claim to have the foresight to think, you know, 2020 was going to be the year that we'd have COVID and murder hornets and everything else that's coming down the line. Yeah, we got really lucky this year, didn't we? Yeah. We're here today to talk about what we're going to do at the Durham VA to stay ahead of this, because this is probably not something that's going to go away anytime soon. You know, like in the next year or two, things may start to get back to normal, but for now, we should probably just settle in, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, I remember talking to uh, our incident command the first time it stood up and sometime in February and mentioning the fact that this is going to change the paradigm of how we approach patients with a respiratory illness for at least the next two years. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how the residents and those of us that are taking care of the veterans in the hospital are going to approach this. So let's start with the basic stuff. Tell me what, what exactly is COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2? What's the difference between those two terms and, and where do they come from? Yeah, so SARS-CoV-2 is the virus itself and COVID-19 is the syndrome caused by the virus. You can kind of think of it like HIV and AIDS. HIV is the virus and AIDS is the syndrome that HIV can cause. So here, SARS-CoV-2 is a RNA virus. It's a coronavirus. Corona meaning crown because it has these you know, cute little red, uh, on all the images at least red, but not really under electron micrography. Are they uh, cute? Is cute the word you want to use? Well, you know, it depends on whether you're an infectious disease physician or, uh, you know, not. Uh, <laughs> okay. Delightful. Would that be better? Apocalyptic. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's uh, because it has these kind of crown, these uh, crown proteins. It's an enveloped coronavirus, it's a beta coronavirus. Before this, we've had six uh, circulating coronaviruses in human populations, many more in animal populations. But within human populations, we've had four that have been circulating for 
five or six decades, and all of those are causes of the common cold. And then we've had two kind of high consequence uh, infections, SARS-CoV-1, or just previously known just as SARS, and MERS-CoV, which is the cause of MERS. This is the first high consequence coronavirus to have a significant impact on the United States. What should we be on the lookout for? How do these patients present, and when do we need to really be worried about them? We're learning more every day, and we certainly don't know everything at this point, but there's a myriad of symptoms that people can show up with, which is a complicating factor because mm -hmm. while the vast majority of people will get fever and shortness of breath at some point during their illness, a lot of them present with runny nose, congestion, sore throat, headache, things that are really nonspecific. And so it's hard to say, you know, is this just I have a stress headache or do you have COVID? It's a, a really hard thing to kind of tease out. So when should we be concerned? Seek medical attention versus maybe just stay home and ride it out? Well, that's a great question. And uh, one of the things we've noticed is that people are profoundly hypoxic, even when they're not necessarily recognizing that they're hypoxic or feeling, you know, that they're short of breath or anything. We've had a number of patients who have shown up and certainly to our emergency department, but throughout the nation, who are talking in full sentences, who feel maybe minimally short of breath, and then you check their oxygen saturation, it's 55. And so many patients are now receiving pulse oximeters to go home with when they're diagnosed with COVID. And so certainly if they become hypoxic, it would be a good thing for them to come to the hospital. Uh, but really, we're telling people, if you're feeling uncomfortable, if you're not feeling safe at home, feeling more short of breath to the point where they don't feel like they're getting enough air, then they certainly need to come to the hospital. But most people will have a febrile illness that lasts for a week to 10 days and then recover. Okay. So for the most part, this sounds like a respiratory thing. Is that the only way that it's spread or are there other ways that it can spread? The vast majority of transmission appears to be through respiratory droplets. But like I said before, we really don't know everything. And there's potential concern about, you know, five to 10% of cases that could be from contaminated surfaces. And those again would be contaminated from respiratory droplets. The jury's still out on the role, if any, that aerosols play in this in disease transmission. Certainly we can find virus in the air, just like we can with influenza or rhinovirus and usually in significantly lower quantities. You know, three or four log lower quantities than you would find them on surfaces or in people's respiratory droplets. And we can find virus in GI tract specimens as well. Whether that contributes at all to spread is probably unlikely, but we just don't know for sure. So the main way that we need to prevent the spread of this is to wear our masks, correct? Exactly right. We have some data from our colleagues at Duke, Jess Seidelman and Becky Smith, who are infectious disease and infection control folks across the street, looked at every healthcare worker who contracted COVID over the course of the first three to four months of the pandemic and stratified them by whether they were healthcare associated, community acquired, or unknown. It was about a third for each. So you had 50 healthcare workers who had clear transmission in the facility, clear transmission out in the community, or you know, couldn't really say one way or the other. Seven days after Duke implemented their universal masking policy, the healthcare worker transmission flatlined. So what about the role of hand washing, Dr. Hosler? Hand hygiene is certainly important for a number of different reasons. And I think that the, the primary reason to perform hand hygiene is to assume the fact that you probably have touched contaminated surfaces. And so this is going to minimize your risk of touching a contaminated surface and then touching one of your mucous membranes and potentially, you know, contaminating your respiratory tract that way. So while we don't know for sure the frequency with which people contract COVID from contaminated surfaces, I think it's safe to say that there's some degree of spread that way. And so washing your hands really kind of minimizes that mode of transmission. What about the Durham VA in particular? What precautions have we taken to minimize the spread 
in our institution. We were one of the first in the country to cancel our elective procedures and move in a way that would really expand our bed capacity, which thankfully we haven't had to use. But within the course of about a month to a month and a half, we were able to identify and develop a plan to put online an initial 90 beds in relatively rapid succession. We haven't had to do that, and uh, we've now reverted some of those bed spaces back towards clinical areas that we can use for outpatient care as well. But the switch is easy to flip at this point, which is really important. We've implemented a lot of distancing and risk mitigation strategies that will hopefully continue to reduce the risk of transmission within the facility, primarily universal masking, reducing the number of people in waiting rooms, uh, being aggressive about identifying people early on in the course of disease by having multiple testing sites spread throughout our catchment area. One of the complicating factors here is that, you know, unlike our partners at Duke, we have a 27 county catchment area. And so trying to ensure that we have access to veterans from here to the coast is complicated. And it requires that we have not just a single site where we can bring people to do testing, but multiple sites east and west of 95. That's a ton. Wow. Within the VA, either at the hospital or at these other distant sites, what kind of COVID tests are we running? Right now, there's a single type of test, and that would be the reverse transcriptase PCR or RT-PCR. This looks for genetic material of the virus. It can't distinguish between whether it's live virus or dead virus or attenuated virus or antibody-bound virus, but it really just tells you whether or not the person is shedding any type of genetic material related to SARS-CoV-2. It's a very specific test, and so if you identify a positive, it's probably reflective of genetic material from SARS-CoV-2, not from some different respiratory virus. The sensitivity is actually very good in terms of the assay itself, However, there are a lot of things that go into the sensitivity of testing. So whether or not you get an appropriate sample, whether the sample is put into the tube and transported in a, an appropriate amount of time, whether that sample is run or frozen in an adequate amount of time, all of those things can contribute to the sensitivity of testing. And so we're probably looking at about overall 80 to 85% sensitivity of this test. When you look at the prevalence of disease though right now, the prevalence is relatively low in the community. So the negative predictive value of a test is actually very high. So probably over 98%, which means negative test, you can feel comfortable that the person probably doesn't have COVID unless it's a real severe illness, in which case it, it would be reasonable to read. And you're talking about just for North Carolina, the prevalence. That's correct. So when we're ordering COVID tests and everyone who comes into the hospital is going to be tested right out of the gate, but sometimes the tests come back pretty quick and sometimes they don't, right? How do we choose between those two tests? That's right. There's a COVID-19 testing note that will kind of guide you through the process. Right now we have two different platforms on which we're running SARS-CoV-2 testing. One of them is a rapid platform from Cepheid, and the other one is a batched platform through the Abbott M2000. Unfortunately, we don't have capacity due to the availability of kits to run rapid testing on everyone. However, we do have the ability to have relatively rapid turnaround in that the M2000 returns results in about one to two business days. Basically, if you put in the COVID-19 testing note at the Durham VA and CPRS, you can select the indication and it will automatically generate an order for the appropriate platform. So symptomatic patients are going to be tested on the rapid platform. Asymptomatic patients are going to be tested, generally speaking, on the slower platform. And it'll also guide you for the type of PPE that's required while engaging the patient in care until those results return. Got it. So there's guidance there. And if patients that are sick with COVID-19, they pretty much always require ID consult. Is that correct? 
Yeah, that's right. And primarily because we're going to be providing some therapeutic options. Right now, remdesivir and convalescent plasma both require an ID consult. And so in order to be able to provide those kind of therapeutic options, we would need to be involved. Got it. And then what about antibody testing? Yeah, that's a, a black box that is becoming a slightly less black box uh, over the course of time. So we're in the midst of validating our antibody testing. One of the big issues with antibody testing is the specificity, which in low prevalence settings makes the positive predicate value relatively low. So it can make the clinical test hard to interpret for that individual patient. We're, we have a relatively specific test, the uh, orthodiagnostic panel, that will give us both a total antibody test, so that'll include IgA, IgM, and IgG. And then if that's positive, it'll reflex to an IgG only. The distinction there is that total antibodies, yeah, IgA and IgM occur early on in the course of disease, certainly after the PCR would be positive. But once you start to develop an antibody response, those are the first antibodies that will pop up. Whereas IgG is a better marker for whether or not you may have some degree of immunity moving forward. Some of the issues are that one, we don't know what the threshold for immunity is. Two, we don't know whether it's true immunity and that you can't contract and spread the disease. You may be relatively protective from severe disease, but you may continue to be able to transmit it to other people. And three, we don't know the duration of that immunity, what that means in terms of, you know, if you have an elevated IgG, are you going to continue to be immune for weeks, months, or years to come? There's a lot of nuance to the interpretation of antibody testing, but from an epidemiologic standpoint, it's going to be really helpful to determine what the prevalence of disease is now and moving forward. We actually have a number of studies that we're bringing online locally within the VISN and expanding nationally that will help us kind of determine the epidemiology of this disease over the course of the next uh, months to years. Some of that information may be completely different by the time some of our learners are listening to this, so I may have to recruit you, Dr. Hosler, to do an update every so often. It might have to be a daily update because it seems like <laughs> it's changing on a daily basis. Last question for you, Dr. Hostler. What can we as the providers at the Durham VA do to ensure the safety of ourselves and our patients and also our colleagues in the hospital? Probably the biggest thing that we can do is really try to adhere to all the risk mitigation strategies we've implemented. So masking is by far, in a way, the most important intervention. And where we've seen lapses in that are not necessarily with patient care. I think everyone is pretty good about ensuring that they're wearing a mask and the patient's wearing a mask, especially if the patient is sick. We have not seen any transmission from COVID-positive patients to healthcare workers, but we've seen the enemy and the enemy is us. Where we've seen transmission in the hospital is when people go to the break room and take off their masks because they're you know, with their colleagues and whatnot. And due to the fact that there's a degree of asymptomatic or presymptomatic transmission, we really need to be vigilant about that. You know, COVID doesn't take a break, even though it's in a break room. So masking is important, keeping your distance when possible. And we're implementing a number of engineering controls moving forward in terms of you know, how can we ensure distance in workspaces or potentially put up some barriers between workspaces to further minimize risk. But masking is by far and away the most important intervention that we can adhere to right now. Yeah, and I can say things will change soon, but we are working on distancing the gen med teams from one another as much as possible. You know, originally we had lots of learners cramped kind of into the same space, and now post-call teams are rounding in different locations, and teams are getting spread out as much as possible, and this itself is a living thing also, so that'll change, and anytime you guys start the rotation, you will get updates about where you're supposed to round and how you're supposed to keep yourself and your colleagues safe. I want to thank Dr. Hosler again for talking to me about this very important and timely issue. Hey, thanks so much for having me.
For more information, feel free to reach out to the infectious disease team or also Dr. Hostler or any of the hospitalists. We're always available to help you guys out. As always, the views discussed today are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of the Durham VA.